listening to the Astral Hour. I'm your host, Astral Meadow. Join me as we take a glimpse into the mysterious. Welcome everyone. Today I'm joined once again with my friend Aaron Braun. In our last episode, which was episode 27, we covered paganism in Norse mythology. And today we're going to explore these topics even deeper. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm happy and excited to be here again. It's been about a year, I believe, since I was on last. Yeah, yeah. That episode has had so much love. And um, I was just really surprised at how many people reached out and were like inspired by it. And it was so cool to to bring that topic um, forward for some people. so That is awesome. I'm definitely excited. One of my favorite subjects to go on here. Yes, yes. Um, for those who haven't listened to our last episode, could you briefly give us a little background on yourself and some of your passions? Absolutely. So my background, I grew up in a family. I was actually a product of an unplanned pregnancy of parents ages 13 and 15, believe that or not. I know it sounds crazy, <laughs> but so I grew up with my maternal side of the family, my grandparents, and I was exposed to a lot of domestic domestic violence, some abuse in the household, a lot of neglect. Some of my youngest memories of my childhood were being left home alone at age eight or nine while my grandparents would go out to the bar and drink and they would come back drunk as entirely different people. And those were some of my earliest memories as a kid. Probably not the, the most fond moments of childhood right there. So needless to say, that created an impact on who I became. Um, into my teens, I started to become depressed. I fell into a deep state of depression. I started suffering from severe anger problems. I became very unhealthy. My diet consisted of Taco Bell, McDonald's, and a case of Mountain Dew probably every two or three days. And my lifestyle consisted of playing video games from the time that I woke up to the time that I would go to bed. And uh, that was about my life. High blood pressure, pre-diabetic, chronic depression, constant anger, and uh, your typical life of a teenager right there, right? So I, um, I grew up and my paternal grandfather, my dad's dad, was a Baptist minister. Now, I was not too close to really either side of my family, and I wouldn't necessarily say that I grew up in a religious environment per se, but I grew up in a, what you would be called like a non-religious Christian household, Mm -hmm. at least on my maternal side. My paternal side was much more involved with the church, much more affiliated with the uh, the Baptist minister, um, you know, approach, and which, can you believe the irony of uh, my dad being the typical son of a preacher, um, having me at the age of 15 years old? (laughs) We have to laugh about that. It's an ongoing joke. But um, so I'm getting into this topic of religion here because this is sort of what opened up the door for my spiritual development later on in life. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to recap a couple moments when I was really young. I remember I was at my great-grandmother's apartment, and my neighbor at the time, he was an Indian man, and he was an incredibly kind man. He helped take care of my great-grandmother, and we would often go over to his apartment, and I remember on his fireplace he had three statues that aligned the mantle of his fireplace. He had a statue of the Buddha and Lord Vishnu and another Vedic god that I cannot quite remember. And at the time, I had no idea what they were, but I always thought they looked really cool. You know, as a kid, I'm like, oh, those look really cool. And I asked him, okay, what are are these statues? And he would say, oh, this is Lord Buddha. This is Lord Vishnu. And I remembered those names. And 
Sometime later, I was in Sunday school with a distant relative who I would often go to Sunday school with to hang out with my cousins. And I remember I was in Sunday school and they were talking about Jesus Christ being Lord. I'm like, huh, this is interesting. I'm talking about Jesus and I've never heard any uh, reference to the Buddha or Lord Vishnu. And I asked the Sunday school teacher, I'm like, you know, who is Lord Vishnu? And I remember this particular moment that stood out to me. The look that I got from this Sunday school teacher had peered into my soul, almost looked like I just uttered some satanic curse. And I cannot remember verbatim of what it was said, but I remember being left with so much guilt and so much fear Mm. to the point to where I actually began fearing my neighbor. Mm. Um, This was associated with... um, you know, satanic, um, satanic practices. And I know those words weren't necessarily used at the time, but it was heavily implied. And it struck fear into my heart to where I began fearing this neighbor, thinking that he was some, you know, horrendous, monstrous being underneath his human flesh. And he was the kindest, sweetest man you could have ever met who would have given the shirt off his back to anybody. And looking back in hindsight, it's very apparent as to what was going on. So that was my real first exposure to religion. And I was an inquisitive kid by nature. And I had often talked about, you know, well, is it possible to believe in God or a, or gods without necessarily believing the Bible? And it was always met with, well, you cannot accept an existence of God if you don't accept the Bible because the Bible is his word. So it was a false dilemma, looking back in hindsight, but in my mind, it was just black or white. You either have to accept it as it is or as it's not. Um, So that's sort of the gist of what led me into that journey. Uh, When I was in my, I want to say early to mid-20s, I was going through a divorce. I was at an all-time low in my life, and going through a divorce, I was chronically depressed. I had thoughts of suicide, and I mean, couldn't be much lower than what that could be right there, and... I'm like, wow, I'm at a point to where if I don't figure out my life, I'm either going to end up dead or I will just be an absolute miserable shell sleeping my life away. And I honestly felt that I was a burden to the world. And from that point on, it's when I started discovering the power of hypnotherapy, hypnosis. There was a few things that led me down that adventure, which allowed me to start reappraising the subconscious mind, reprogramming who I was. And then a couple years later, I was led into my spiritual journey. And from the spiritual journey, everything unfolded from that point on. Wow, beautiful. Um, Could you go into a little bit about um, what inspired the syncretic pagan page that you host? Yeah, absolutely. So I created the syncretic pagan page. This was probably about six months ago. Because I often share various spiritual posts on my social media platform, and they're simply reflections of my belief, of my philosophy on life. And I specifically labeled it syncretic pagan. Because pagan is an umbrella term that's used to describe any indigenous practice pre-Abraham religion. And at the root of all of these practices, the core tenets are virtually the same. So when we think paganism... How often do we hear the terms Norse paganism, Greek paganism, Egyptian mythology, Native American spirituality, African spirituality? We hear these terms and in our head, we tend to differentiate between them. Now, the only defining difference between these terms are the cultures that practice them. But we strip away the cultures, we strip away the names, and at the core tenets of these belief systems, we essentially had the same practice. 
So the Syncretic Pagan Instagram page is a page that I created to where I can create this content. I can draw these parallels between different belief systems. For example, a practicing Hindu or a Native American spiritualist, two entirely different cultures and entirely different parts of the earth. Eventually, you know, essentially they're sharing the same belief systems. So the Syncretic Pagan is an outlet to where I can demonstrate the core tenets of these belief systems. I love that. Um, when you were talking about like your introduction into like some of the other deities outside of Christianity, um, it reminded me of how I, you know, how I was exposed and I was in Sunday school and my Sunday school teacher was taking a college class on world religions. And so she brought all her notes and decided to teach other religions oh, in wow. Sunday school class, <laughs> but from the lens of like understanding one another. Sure. It's funny because this girl is still technically my friend on Facebook, but I'm a, you know, but um, I like, I'm like, thank you. Cause you're the one that like opened the door for me. But you know, as soon as that happened, I went and bought like a book that had all of the different religions in it and like wanted to study the mythology. And, and I just knew that there was some underlining interconnection between them all, you know, and that, you know, it's silly to like discriminate or hate one or, or anything like that, because I just think like at the core, if you could just align with like the virtues and, and the love and compassion and unity and all that, like that we would be fine. Right. And it doesn't Absolutely. really matter which one you go with, you know? Absolutely. And I think in today's modern age, it's so common to associate yourself heavily with one of these labels, like, oh, I'm a Norse pagan or I'm a Celtic pagan. Right. What does that really mean? Uh, ultimately, what it really means at the, at the face value of this is you simply follow those cultural practices, which is mm -hmm. fine which is fine. But in terms of the belief system, they were all and are compatible with one another. Mm -hmm. There is no conflicting information that says that you cannot honor deities of other pantheons outside of your culture. In fact, it was highly common for this to happen. In fact, even when Christianity first began to spread in Scandinavia, the Norsemen actually were willing to accept Jesus Christ, not necessarily as their savior, mm -hmm. but as another deity. Like, oh, Great, another deity. He is not ours, but that's great. Mm -hmm. It's it's like being it's it's akin to shopping at a specific grocery outlet that you like to shop at. Say you you go to Target, but then you acknowledge the existence of other grocery stores, but you tend to be partial to the one that you patronize. And it's mm -hmm. as simple as that. So there is really no conflicting information amongst any of these pagan practices. Yes, I think that's one of my favorite things about paganism is the acceptance and just it's like we're totally okay with whatever anyone else wants to choose. And I just feel like that's that's amazing. Like at the core, like that, well, shouldn't we all kind of be like that? And I think that's why I'm the most comfortable with the word paganism. You know, if I have to pick one because I feel like it allows me to kind of pick and choose what resonates with me, you know, without feeling like, okay, I have to devote everything to one deity or I have to exclude my friends now that are practicing this other thing. And so I love it for that reason. And Absolutely. And, and none of the practices, at least to the forefront of my knowledge, require exclusive worship or honoring mm -hmm. to any other deities at all. That's strictly an Abrahamic concept. Right. Right. For sure. Um, what sort of things do you cover on your Patreon page? The Dringo? Is it... Yeah, Drenger Discipline. Drenger, Drenger Discipline. Discipline. Yes, I'm glad you asked that. Drenger. So Drenger is an old Norse word. And the original 
meaning of the word dranger was a standalone rock that would stand alone in an ocean withstanding the current of the waves. And it stood strong in its foundation and it was immovable. It was an immovable object. And that term later on was carried into the warriors on the battlefield. They would, the dranger would be somebody with fierce determination, fierce courage in adversity to be able to go head on into battle, into conflict. And Drenger Discipline, developing the Drenger Mindset, is a brand that I established earlier in this year. And every culture has what we would consider the warrior mentality. Now, to the Norsemen, it would be the Drenger. Uh, to the, say, to the Chinese, it would be the Shaolin monks. Maybe to the Japanese, it would be the samurai. You know, maybe in modern-day United States, it would be the Navy SEALs. And every culture has a variation of this mindset. And what I do here is I combine mind, body, and spirit to become aligned so you can become the best version of yourself as possible. So on my Drenger Discipline Instagram, my Drenger Discipline Patreon, I offer this content for people who are willing to subscribe where I release mindset tips of the week. I release workout tips of the week, workout tutorial videos. I release PDF files on mindset development, on spiritual development, physical training, everything in between. I offer video presentations, and all the way up to my highest end tiers, I offer one-on-one -on -one work with me directly. Awesome. Yeah, I love following your work on social media, and I'm always just amazed at the amount of content that you are able to create that just, it's always great. It's all, I'm always learning something. I'm always... Oh, like wake up tired. I'll see one of your videos. I'm like, I guess I'm going to start lifting weights today. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I really appreciate it. You know, it's funny because a lot of people have so many talents and creative aspects of themselves. Ever since I was a child, I've always felt that writing was one of my outlets. Mm. Writing, being able to express myself in words was an outlet of mine. I remember writing stories when I was a kid of of superheroes probably because that's what I longed for in my life was this heroic male figure because I didn't really have any heroic figures in my life so I took to writing and now as a 36 year old man I can have a more effective way of conveying this out to other people and if every now and then if I'm scrolling or I see a post or I hear a topic I will write notes I'm like this is an amazing post for a topic that I'm going to speak on or write about later and then I save that and then I always have my own variation of my headliner that I can put to convey the message that I'm trying to convey. So I really appreciate that. Could you explain some of the similarities and differences between paganism and witchcraft? Absolutely. So paganism, as I alluded to earlier, it's a very large umbrella term. And it covers a number of traditions, ancient and modern, all over the world. So it's basically any religion that was practiced prior to... Judaism or Christianity. Uh, actually, Judaism at its core was polytheistic, but that's a topic for another day entirely. We won't get too often into the weeds over there. Um, but it's important to understand also that paganism, you know, was a, a modernized term. This was not something that the indigenous people had referred to their practice at. Pagan didn't exist. That was more of a Christianized term, which even later led to being synonymous with Satanism, which is entirely not correct at all. In fact, Satan never had or had anything to do with the practices of the uh, indigenous cultures of the land. Um, paganism is rather characterized by the experience of divine power inherent in the natural world and not separate from it. And witchcraft 
is a practice of magic. It's specifically the practice of magic. So by definition, every practice of witchcraft is pagan by definition, but not every pagan pac- practitioner is a practice practitioner of magic, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, I think some people get confused about the two. And I kind of, I guess, dabble in both. I don't call you know, my practice witchcraft, but others probably would because I'm, you know, studying the moon cycles and, um, you know, doing my readings and, and just writing like what's going on and just documenting my process and making space to like meditate and light a candle. But I mean, I'm sure that, that some people might call that witchcraft, but yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that's the fun thing about paganism though, is like, you can make up your own rituals or you can follow, you know, other people's rituals, whatever it is. But um, it is so true. In fact, I would say from what I've seen now, it's not uncommon for modern day practitioners of magic to just be exclusive practitioners of magic. And mm-hmm. they don't really even affiliate with the term pagan or they're not even really that devout into the ancient practices. Right. They more so blend it into sort of this more modernized Western spiritual practice which is fine mm-hmm. it totally is fine it's a it is an aspect of pagan practices but a lot of people especially in the west have taken that and they have just developed sort of their own what's often referred to as western spirituality which mm-hmm. is sort of its own genre and it mm-hmm. has aspects of pagan practices to it but it's not inherently pagan if that makes sense right right so um could you share a little bit about some of the practices of some of the indigenous cultures and ways we can work with some of this wisdom. Um, Also, how do you think that some of these cultures merged? Yes, absolutely. This is an amazing question. And this goes back to what we were discussing earlier regarding every culture sharing the same principal roots. If we take away the terms, the cultural terms, the language, and we look at the practices, we take away the physical appearance of all these cultures we're going to notice some very, very common roots. And some of those roots are acknowledging that there is a divine presence in nature. Nature and life are sacred and worthy of reverence, especially the planet itself is considered a living being that we owe our respect and love. There's animism. So basically what that means is all things in nature are alive and conscious in some important way. And not only humans and other animals, but other inanimate things sometimes are perceived as having their own consciousness. Rocks, water, air, fire, the elements. Everything in the universe is considered sacred and the force is eminent in all things and all things are worthy of all of our respect. Another uh, example of this would be that the physical world is simply um, an illustration of the ultimate reality and it's good and it's to be enjoyed by all living things. It's the ultimate reality. There's also the belief that consciousness extends far beyond the restraints of physical forms. Consciousness survives death and exists simultaneously on multiple planes of reality. Ethics and morality are based on avoidance of intentional harm to other beings. Personal responsibility for your actions. What you do shall return to you in time in one way or another. Also, at the core of this, polytheism, the belief that there are many gods and goddesses, and through rituals and other spiritual practices, we can connect with the divine in an experimental way. Reincarnation is also a central tenet in many of these varieties of paganism. It's so, it's been so fun, like going into the records and asking certain questions and then sort of just discovering that our ancestors were kind of spot on with their observations. And even though they each had their own lens and their own culture that they brought forth, 
when I'm in the records and I'm, you know, I'm asking about like just animism, like that's, there literally is a life force and everything, you know? Absolutely and everything. So you're sitting on this bench that's made out of wood, but at some point that was a tree. And if yes. time is irrelevant, then that tree still exists. So that life force that was that tree, even though it's been cut down and reformed into something else, is still in the thing you're sitting on. So it's just been so awesome to have this connection and things that just felt true to me, you know, based on things of just studying these other cultures. When I asked, it's like, yes, you know, yes, they were they're right in in that way and um of course there's so many versions of the truth right there's so many things but um i just feel like we can learn so much about ourselves by looking back and you know trying to understand what these other cultures were conveying you know because sometimes there might be like a language barrier or if you if you haven't ever like considered some of these concepts it might be hard for you to wrap your head around it I feel like if you if you stick with it and you try to understand, like it makes so much sense, even to like the modern mind, you know, it's just making space to sit with those truths. Absolutely. Know? And I love the analogy that you used with the bench. I mean, that's <laughs> perfect right there. That bench at one point was a tree. The tree was a living being and that mm -hmm. energy never dies. It simply transforms. And this is a phenomenal way to look at this, honestly. And <laughs> yeah, I truly do believe that the ancients did have this right. And as time has gone on, mm -hmm. that continuum has extended and we have limited our minds and our belief systems, and we are, even if we are not of, say, a Christian faith or Islamic faith, we still live in a heavily uh, influenced uh, Christian society. So we mm -hmm. look at things through a Christianized lens of black and white, and that really does limit a lot of beliefs mm -hmm. in terms of our capabilities. Also, you know, in, in Vedic scriptures, we are also in the Kali Yuga. Mm -hmm. time period, which is also the, the age of greatest spiritual disconnect. So mm -hmm. it's hardest for us to even comprehend what it means right. to be in tune with the spiritual nature. I mean, it's almost a foreign concept um, that eludes us because we are living in that age. And until we really go within and do that deep level of introspection, we have a hard time even grasping what that means. Right. I do feel as though collectively there are more and more people you know, interested in meditation and having just little, little experiences here and there. Like I, I cannot tell you how many people have told me my third eye is not open. I don't see anything, but they're like, but I do see color. And I'm like, well, that's kind of something. So I feel like everyone's like right on the edge of like, they're wanting to know they're starting to do these practices. They're having some experiences. Um, but yeah, it's not like psychic download. Now they have everything. You know, exactly. It's like it takes right. like, practice and just spending time like in these certain states you know before you really can say okay when I'm in this state I'm accessing like the Akashic records or I'm you know able to really channel into my subconscious or you know because it like you don't really know what you're doing right away but I do think that like we're there's more people than ever in my lifetime that are asking questions and doing practices and it's kind of like they're just following their own intuition on it. You Absolutely. Know? And that's what it comes down to is following your own intuition. And if we're too heavily guided by either the too heavily swayed toward the heart or the mind, mm -hmm. then mm -hmm. we'll always want to rationalize 
our experiences or justify why it's not correct. But if we listen to the intuition, which is, in my opinion, separate from the heart and the mind, Mm -hmm. then we can truly start to really remember who we are. And it's just like I always say, you know, I'm obviously a physical person and, you know, I can equate this to working out. You know, when you first begin a workout routine or a workout regimen, you are building your muscle, you Mm -hmm. are engaging in progressive overload, and you don't just start out with becoming a world-class athlete when you step foot into the training center. Mm -hmm. You periodize your training just like you would exercise your spiritual muscle, but you have to be able to have that belief that you can take that step. And then from there, you have to be willing to be receptive to opening. Right. Yeah. When you said belief, I think that's so much is that the beliefs, like you were saying, like, because we've sort of been raised in a Christian society, even if we don't identify as that, So for me, I really had to kind of just take everything off the table and then formulate, like, what do I believe? Because I think our fears or there's limiting beliefs that are actually holding us back from having another experience. So if you're terrified of meditation or you're scared to, like, lucid dream or, like, people will tell me all the time, like, I was right there. I was about to, I could feel, you know, myself, like, merging into the dream and I got scared and I pulled myself right back out. Yes. And so it's like our these limiting beliefs and fears are are why we're not able to go there, you know, because I feel like our mind is trying to like protect us in that way. So it really it's working on like asking yourself, well, what do I believe, you know, and is is this belief like serving me? You know, is this belief holding me back from exploring anything new? So I feel like I'm just, I'm all the time asking myself that. And one of my rituals with the moon is like to clear any limiting belief that's preventing me from making progress, you know? Which is amazing. Absolutely. (laughs) And it really does. It comes down to fear. Fear is like the number one driving factor that serves as that precursor to prevent us from being that genuine self. And that could Mm -hmm. be fear of uncertainty. That could be fear of the unknown. That could be fear of should we say it, going to hell? Because let's be honest, there are people out there who will tell you that meditation is an access way to the devil. Yes, they will tell you that. And even if you don't directly believe that, you have that in the back of your mind. Like, oh, if I start meditating and I I start getting these thoughts of these, um, you know, other dimensional realms of existence, it's the devil coming in. (laughs) You know, that always obviously causes some kind of fear. Who isn't afraid of eternal damnation, right? Right. (laughs) For sure. But um, I feel like... If you can work on the fear and get past it and you're in those states, you realize that it's it's actually nothing to be afraid of and that we're like pulling in the experiences that we need. And so we're, I feel like in, the energy is sort of matching us. So like when we're ready for, you know, a certain, maybe a, a master or just even like, you know, sometimes the, it's like the energy of love or just like a, it can be a theme like sometimes in, i'm in the records and that one day the guide was a chakra and okay, that yeah. was the guide for the day yeah, and sure. i was like oh okay so chakras are kind of alive if you're if you're saying that the yes, chakra's a guide yes. so there's something to that you know but at that point i was ready so i just don't feel like spirit is ever dumping anything on you like that you're not ready to handle but if you're so terrified that you can't even have you can't even go to like a sound healing because you're scared, uh, you know, of vibrational medicine or like, it's just, it's wild how it's almost like the system wanted to put that in place so that you never fully accessed your own like divine intelligence, you know, like yes. that you were born with. 
Yes, I do believe that this was originally the intention when Catholicism spread from mm -hmm. Emperor Constantine and when people of prestigious Christian roles were specifically appointed in roles of power. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is uh, largely how the initial spread of Christianity began to spread across Europe and then from there the world. And from there it was this or that. You accept this as fact or you will forever eternally be excluded. Mm -hmm. And that gets passed on from generation after generation after generation. And then all of a sudden here we are, generations of exposures to this belief systems. Mm -hmm. Well, now it's like, okay, we got to take a step back. How do we release and transcend above this fear? Right. For sure. For sure. Um, let's talk a little bit about deities. Uh, yes. Do you think that deities live forever? Oh, this is an amazing question. I'm really <laughs> glad you asked this. And as much as I would love, well, I'm actually, I actually don't love the fact that this is not a simple yes or no answer because <laughs> um, I'm going into detail. So this largely depends on the culture you ask. Mm -hmm. Now, when I meet a deity face to face in the flesh, <laughs> I will have a conclusive answer perhaps. But uh, what we do have is we have the, what do we have? The ancient belief systems of some of the oldest records we have or in the Vedic teachings, or we can look at the belief systems of the ancient Norse or the ancient Greek or how the Native Americans perceive their deities. And first, I think it's important to identify what does to die mean and ask ourselves if death is perceived the same by a god as if it is by humans. So by definition, by Greek definition, I should say, actually, gods do not die by nature gods are anti-death. They are without death. The actual Greek word means immortal or without death. And it, in, in fact, in English, that's what it translates to is immortal. And, but so basically, there's a difference between an immortal creature that lives indefinitely and a god that just simply lacks the capacity to die at all. So it's naturally humans should die. So an immortal human stagnates within one life, but a god doesn't necessarily experience our birth-death cycle. It just is, at least at its core. Now, this is largely stemming from a lot of the Greek beliefs where the concepts of immortality were highly touched on. Um, now, there are several sagas within, say, the Norse mythos where gods regularly die, um, but their death, quote-unquote, doesn't necessarily seem to imply the end of all. So what I mean by that is, give an example, Odin sacrificed himself on the world tree Yggdrasil, where he, quote-unquote, died, but he was reborn as a higher conscious being. He was said to attain the runes and to unlock the secrets of the cosmos. It was also foretold in the sagas that the events of Ragnarok would lead to the twilight of the gods, which literally means the death of the gods. Mm -hmm. There's also the story of Baldur, the god who was killed, but he was reborn in Helim where he was said to live until the new cycle of life would start, where he would subsequently be reborn into the new world following the events of Ragnarok. So does this imply that these gods die and then they're reincarnated? Or perhaps is this a, a spontaneous rebirth without the need to even experience the entire cycle of life from quote-unquote god infancy into the right prime god, a forgetting consciousness of their past godly selves? Maybe are their deaths merely metaphorical mm -hmm. or perhaps a God's true nature is that without death. But if they take the form of a physical vessel, such as a body, then perhaps they're subjecting themselves to the same laws of the cosmos that we humans experience. So there's a lot of different concepts on how this is perceived. Now let's look a little further into this, into the Vedic concept of what's called devas, 
which loosely translates from gods. So this actually suggests that there are divine beings, that there are celestial beings, but they're simply extremely long-lived, as in millennia. So often, even to the extent that they're unaware of their own mortality due to their astronomical lifespan. So according to Hindu and Buddhist cosmology, these beings have accumulated divine karma. They've been reborn as these godly celestial beings who inhabit what we would call heavenly realms of existence, which we could even include the Christian heaven, Muslim paradise, and even Asgard of the Norse and so on. And in this cosmology, the devas are highly differentiated from direct manifestations of the divine source. Now, perhaps these gods or devas are more like what we can consider supernatural beings rather than actual gods. But I do believe that these beings are much, much more spiritually developed than humans. So I think when we strip away all these terms, it really comes down to what beings are we talking about? How do we define death? And are they simply much more spiritually in tune with their consciousness than we humans are? So these are just a few different perspectives that a few different cultures have on this question. Yeah. <clears throat> I was thinking about, you know, like Krishna being an incarnation of Vishnu. And so I, I've never heard like the story of like Vishnu dying. And I mean, maybe I could try to find it. So I always wonder if Vishnu, which is like the core essence of like the beginning of that energy. Yes. Is taking different forms, but like Vishnu still exists, even though Krishna exists, like like that Vishnu might be kind of like the higher self. Yes, absolutely. This is so Vishnu is considered a direct manifestation in in a sense of the Brahman or mm -hmm. the divine source, uh, which would be Lord Vishnu is the preserver. Now, it is said that Lord Vishnu has incarnated um, multiple times, mm -hmm. and Krishna was one of the most prominent incarnations. And in fact, according to the Hindus, uh, Lord Buddha was also an incarnation. Um, right. There are sects of Buddhism that do disagree, but it is commonly accepted that Buddha is a incarnation of Lord Vishnu. Now, these are what would be considered a god in physical form. Um, right. or an avatar, which mm -hmm. is actually a Vedic term. And of course, Lord Krishna did die. He was killed. But Vishnu himself is the soul, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. the essence of the energy, um, who is beyond death, beyond the cycle of life and death, if that makes sense. That makes so much sense. Because I've, I've always wondered that, because even though there are people that celebrate Krishna, they still still worship Vishnu. Yes. So they honor like his other incarnations, but like there's, you know, a whole, I think most of them, um, most of the Hindus worship. Like, I think I looked at the, the percentages one day and Vishnu was like the main one. So like there was the Brahma, Vishnu and Shiva. So Shiva was like the second most popular in like the worship. Part. So people still worship Vishnu, like he's, he's huge, you know, more than just Krishna, which is just one of his incarnations. Exactly. And I believe uh, Krishna was uh, incarnated as Krishna to be able to relate more to humankind in the human flesh, right? Uh, which is what, and he provided the teachings, um, brought the teachings of the Vedic scriptures to us to be able to apply in our life. And then it's even believed that Lord Buddha, who came after Krishna, had come back, you know, thousands of years later to provide his dharma. Mm -hmm. and say, hey, we don't need to do it this way because the Buddha was born into a time to where there was a wealth of animal sacrifice going on, even human sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So it's believed that the Buddha came down as an incarnate to say, hey, we don't need to continue to do this. There right. are other ways to self-liberation. And he provided 
the Dharma, this Dharma, the Buddha Dharma, to teach people the introspective way to self-liberate. Yes, I love that. I really love studying all of the different avatars and all of the masters. And, and it's wild because they're, they're in the records. So today, the Buddha was one of my guides. Oh, you know, and yeah. he was just like teaching me to surrender and go with the flow and just sort of trust and not not overthink things, you know? And I was like, that's so funny. But like this this deity is literally sending me this message in the records, which makes me feel as though it's a lot like there is life to it. It's not just some archetypal energy. Right. It feels right. very much alive. So I'm I don't know. I feel like it's because if any person has ever existed the, in time that you can access them even if they were killed you know so krishna even though you've said krishna did die like you might still be able to tap into his essence in the record so it's so wild to me to to discover this and then it just totally changed the way i viewed like what is alive you know? Yes, yes. And just like we were talking about, what does alive and death really mean? Right. And can we really look at that through the lens of our human consciousness? Mm -hmm. And I think there's there's much deeper layer than this topic, than our very limited scope of mm -hmm. the cycle of life and death. Um, the body physically dies, it decays like a pair of old clothes. And that's even in the Vedic teachings. What does it mean to be reborn or to reincarnate? It means we simply let go an old pair of clothes and we step into a new pair of clothes mm -hmm. and perhaps to a godly celestial being, it's just, it is as simple as that, as right. us taking out new clothes. But to us, we have a hard time comprehending life before or after right. life. Right. And I feel like the deities, when they're incarnating, even if they are incarnating into a physical vessel, they still have the memory of yes. who they are. So Krishna, as a little child, like, had power and knew who he was you know there wasn't a point where he was like i don't you know i have to discover myself no exactly. it was like <laughs> like he from a baby already knew you know and same thing with like mercury like the the or hermes you know like he was already like causing mischief right out the gate he already had his all of his mental capacity and you know he was already fully embodied into himself so he didn't have to go wait until after middle school and, you know, <laughs> yes. before he could like read or, you know, formulate certain ideas. Like he was already very much in his body. Absolutely. And I do believe this, this is amazing because it brings up another side point too, is human beings, you know, we, unless we achieve this specific uh, level of consciousness with meditative practices, we cannot recall fully at least past lives until mm -hmm. we are uh, at a specific state as described by the buddhist teachings but i do believe that if you are a uh, of, of a godly being or a celestial being that you have that consciousness that sort of transfers from vessel to vessel to vessel mm -hmm. uh, and perhaps they even have the choice to be reborn you know from infancy godhood or are you just simply spontaneously being entering into a new realm i mean there's all these other possibilities as well there's a lot of ancient stories of balder the god who he, when he died, he was just simply in Halim. You right. know, it didn't say he was reborn as baby Boulder. He right. was just there and as he will be into the new world after the events of Ragnarok. So it's it's definitely interesting to to look at it from that scope. Right. Because once they leave the physical vessel or that particular dimension, like they don't necessarily have to come back. 
they exactly, can. Exactly, right. Because there's so many other dimensions. So I think with that instance, you know, maybe he was just comfortable with that, the dimension he was in. And he's like, this is where I'm going to stay for now. Right. Just because we cross over doesn't mean we have to come right back, you know. Exactly. So. And in fact, sometimes it might not happen for thousands millennia there's mm-hmm. there's no particular time period that says the soul uh, is in an immediate state of, of rebirth at all in right. fact it could be very very busy in bardo which is a buddhist term in its limbo state mm-hmm. uh, there are some ceremonial practices that can be used to sort of expedite the rebirth of the soul but right. yes i i largely believe that that is also um what a ghost would be right uh, which is a, an in-between mm-hmm. state between the next uh, cycle of life Right, the the in between world, and I think a lot of the religions have that sort of like the purgatory kind of place, or like the kama loka. Or, yes, um, and like at, like so, you cross over. Now you're in sort of like the spirit realm, and that also has different realms within it. Yes, like, they so do. So each dimension has multiple like levels to it. They really are. The Buddha said that there are immeasurable worlds of existence, immeasurable. Right. And yeah, uh, most of these belief systems have what is referred to as the underworld, which is not a hell, right. uh, as a lot of mistaken beliefs are. It's not a hell, but I, I look at the underworld as being sort of an in-between state, mm-hmm. the underworld, the initial period where you would um, transition to after death. Hades would be an example in, in the Greek mythos, or Halim mm-hmm. in, in the Norse, and the Mayans have their own. There's a number of various underworlds where it's said to the, the soul would go to inhabit for a given period of time, there's really no specific time periods. But if we do look at the Vedic teachings, it does say that that is typically either a, either a period of time to where we are reborn again, or until our karmic effects warrant a rebirth. Right. I was just reading this book. It was Will, William Walker Atkinson. He also wrote the Kabbalion. Um, but in this book, he was talking about the levels of the astral plane, and he was talking about how, like, when we die, um, like, there's our astral body is like a shell and but our soul goes on but the astral body kind of stays just like our physical body doesn't just disappear right right so then our astral body is kind of lingering in the in between and that made me think of like the underworld you know because they're just sort of like floating through they they're not like they don't have desires or they're just sort of like there but he said that like when people are doing like seances and they're like you know tapping into these ghosts that it's not even the soul, you know, sometimes you might be able to do that through different methods, but a lot of times that they're actually like tuning into that in-between realm that the astral shell is in, it still has some of the the data and the life experiences and the stories within it. Absolutely. It's, so it's imprinted in it. Yeah. That's fascinating. You say that too, because I believe the soul is actually different than the spirit. I believe the soul is the broadcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, like watching a TV. Uh, say you turn on the TV and you have a specific channel on there and say you're you're foreign to the concept of what a TV even is. So you turn it on and you see the, the display, the picture, the video, the audio on there. And uh, now say your TV breaks, you know, a person not familiar with the concept of how broadcasting work would be like, oh, there, there it goes. It's, it's broken. Right. But if you put up another TV and you connect to the same network, like, oh, it's back. Mm-hmm. So that's the soul. That's the soul broadcasting life into the body. And I believe that the spirit is sort of the life force that permeates through each mm. physical vessel, if that makes sense. Yeah, I like that description mm-hmm. of it for sure. 
Um, could you talk a little bit about the principle of cause and effect and how it relates to karma? Absolutely. Um, cause and effect really is uh, the how our actions will come back around to us for the good or the better. And the Buddha did speak about this too in his teachings. We have the uh, Noble Eightfold Path, which speaks on right action, right intention, so on and so forth, right thought. And we need to ensure that our behavior is in alignment with all of these paths, these eight paths, um, with pure intent, pure actions, and as close as we can get to that, the more we stray away from our inner goodness. So morality is not legislated by your belief in a deity or your devotion to a deity. It's based upon doing no intentional harm to other beings. So we accumulate so much impression throughout our life from our childhood, our exposures to our family to, I mean, you can take any child who has gone through a traumatic experience and now that has shaped them into them feeling like they're insecure. So now they feel they need to treat others badly because it makes them feel empowered. So now they were acting out of malice, right? And now that malice has carried over inside them. Now they're doing harm to others. And now those others are doing harm to other people. And that's mm -hmm. creating a ripple effect. So this is cause and effect. So this is why it's so important to be mindful of our actions to ensure that we accumulate good karma or even better, transcend all karma. And this is the, a question that has come up before is, is there a way to really, I guess, this is a Christian term, but atone or repent. Mm -hmm. So there is no deity that can really forgive us for wrongdoings, but that's up to us to become self-realized. Mm -hmm. And there is actually a specific case in the Pali Canon of the Buddhist teachings. And there's a story. Um, Angulimala was a serial killer during Buddhist time, and he killed hundreds of people and he created a necklace out of his victim's fingers. Sounds pretty savage, doesn't it? <laughs> he didn't get much more bad than that guy. Um, but he became an arahant before the karmic effects of those killings came to be in full force. Uh, had he not have followed the Buddhist teachings, he would have remained in these low forms of realms for millions of years to come to pay his karmic debts. You know, perhaps uh, even worse off as a human being or even in a hell realm. And this could have set him up for eons of suffering because he was not able to transcend that terrible karma of what he did. Mm -hmm. You know, and that goes to the question about, well, you know, it's not always black and white. You know, what about if I have to do harm to somebody else? And what if I have to defend myself? And then people get caught up in, you know, all the intricate details about this. And there was actually a general of an army who asked the Buddha a similar question. His question was, when I kill an enemy in battles, is that not a violation of the first precept of do no harm to living beings? Now, the Buddha said that a battle is fought often to protect a country or protect countless lives or protecting the Dharma. And that is not a violation of the first precept. And it shows what the underlying intention of your actions are. For example, what are the underlying intentions involved in being a Shaolin warrior? Is it health? Then that's not a violation of the first precept. Is it for protection against somebody? then that's not a violation. Is it to use to remove laziness from the body and the mind? That's also not a violation. Is it used to protect yourself or somebody else other than yourself? That's also not a violation. So you can see there's certain cases in which there are no contradictions. Mm -hmm. So this is an example of being able to be mindful of our actions and understanding the actual intent of why we do what we do in combination with the effect of why we do what we do. 
Right. And really stepping into more of the Dharma and, and trying to consciously not accumulate more karma because we're really on our path. Yes. You know, and where we are being mindful and, and practicing compassion when we need to. And, and just, and I feel like that's what all these avatars are kind of trying to teach. You know, like this is how you neutralize it, right? This is how you stop, you know, accumulating right. the karma, you know, but karma's going to get you, you know? So Saturn's, you know, associated with karma and astrology. And I was reading this Vedic myth and it was talking about Saturn and even Saturn's guru, ha you know, he still has those harsh transits. And if he yeah. has accumulated any karma, he has to do it. And it was like, it said at one point, even Krishna himself, you know, doesn't get past the law of karma. So like, it's not just humans that have to deal with that. Like even on these other planes, you know, it's like, that's the law, the law of cause and effect. It has yes. to be brought into balance and the dues have to be paid. If you've done something, you have to, you know, you're going to have to work on balancing that energy back out now. So. Absolutely. And if you don't pay for it in this lifetime, you will in the next and the next. And <laughs> right. there are no limitations into how many incarnations you can have. And right. that could be a really long time. And if you continue down the path of a downward spiral, you might not get that opportunity to be reborn as a human. And oof, well, the Buddha said something along the lines of the chances of being reborn as a human are as rare as a turtle surfacing, I believe, was once every thousand years mm -hmm. of the ocean and happened to stick his neck through a a hoop of the ocean and, and that's that's how rare it would be so yeah that goes to show you that it's important to pay attention to every single moment right so it's not like hell but it's like which is different you know i, I feel like it's different but if you've ac accumulated a lot of karma it might feel like hell yeah, but, absolutely. but it's like you're doing it to yourself right. and he even said that there are um hell realms and this is a loose translation, not like the Christian hell, which is eternal damnation. He did say that none of them are eternal. They right. can be a very long time, right. but none of them are eternal, like how we would look at like the Christian or Islamic hell. Mm -hmm. I totally agree with that. I think, I really feel like it, it matches our vibration. So if, you know, we've lived our life in this hostile way and we've just filled our mind with these like dark images of, you know terrifying things and we've acted if we've acted in that that negative way that when we cross over like we see all of that and we experience it but oh, yeah. it, it's literally what you're seeing like is a reflection of like what you are so like and i think it's important to see it so you realize wow i, I was really hostile in that life like that's kind of scary like i need to work on this energy like if yes, i am if i reincarnate right. this is one of the things i need to work on so absolutely right I feel like just knowing that karma's there, like it helps bring me peace, you know, that if someone does anything, like I don't have to, I don't have to like fight them, you know, I'm like, well, <laughs> that's on you, you know, Yes. and I just sort of practice like constant forgiveness on my end. And I'm like, they're going to have to, you know, go through their own thing, whether it's a result of this or something else, because I feel like the people that are harming someone, like they end up continually kind of doing that until they address that energy, you know? So I'm like, I forgive you, you know, but so that might like disconnect me from having to work through that karmic bond with them, but they still have to do the work, you know, on their own end. They so. do. They absolutely do. And, and that's the thing. We, we cannot take anything personal. In fact, um, one inspiration that I have is um, Marcus Aurelius, a former Roman emperor, and he mm -hmm. was also one of the pioneers who 
who brought Stoicism to modern practice. And he said, you know, he has a book called Meditations to where he wrote down journals to himself. And now I'm paraphrasing this very roughly here, but he spoke along the lines of, you know, every day in the morning when you wake up, you will say today, I will meet ungrateful, unpleasant, Mm -hmm. wretched, horrid souls who will unleash their anger, unleash their fury on me through no through no personal reasons other than their own ignorance of the world. I need to mm-hmm. accept that there are people outside of this. And as soon as I accept that I have no power outside of my control, but I am in control of my internal thoughts, then I'm then able to develop the level of understanding mm-hmm. to be able to move forward with my day. Right. And it's it's a matter of acknowledging that there are people out there who, through a result of their own ignorance and their own suffering, they will in turn lash out to others. Mm-hmm. But we need to pump the brakes right there and say, right. hey, this stops right here at me, and then distance ourselves right. from that situation. Right. The other night, I was literally thinking about this exact thing, and and the Bible verse of Jesus saying, forgive them for they know not what they do. I'm like, I think this is what he's talking about. It's sure. like, if you just forgive them right off the bat, then you don't go out and hurt somebody else. And so you're kind of in your own way, like... Like you're stepping into your power and you're saying, well, this person might be this way, but I'm not going to feed this. Exactly. And a lot of people hear the word forgive and they think it means that you're pardoning their behavior. It does not mean pardoning their behavior. It means that you are not allowing their behavior to become a personal insult to you to where that holds weight over you. So you can let go of that. And now you can move on with your life and you can, you can guide them to water. But you know, until then they need to be able to, like you said, take those steps to um, ensure that their actions are in alignment with the greater good. Right. Right. Um, could you give some background on Viking shamanism? Um, are there people still practicing this today? Yeah, so there's not a lot of surviving information on whether the ancient Norse practiced actual shamanism, but there is a book that I have read called The Viking Way, and that's written by Neil Price, who does interpret a lot of these teachings as relating to shamanism. So they actually had a class of women, specifically women, called vulva. Um, and they practice what would be considered like a form of shamanism or like adjacent to it, sort of like a, a religious role where they would enter into a trance-like state and they would perform seances and they would have prophetic visions as well as work with magic uh, with the help of the spirits for their community. Um, this practice was actually called Seidir. Um, it's spelled S-E-I-D-R. And this was specifically for women. And in fact, when any any man would practice this role, they would be ridiculed you know, all, and all these things. It was very, very shunned for men to practice this art. Um, they did have seers, people who would be able to prophesize the future. And also, according to the sagas, though, they had runic inscriptions, and those had magical powers. And with the aid of these runes, you could predict the future, you could protect a person, you could heal diseases, you could write down conjuring spells, curses... Now, most of these runes are essentially like learning the language of the universe, which is probably, you know, one of the, you know, who could even pick up a second language with, with ease as it is, the learning and mastering something like this. Mm. Um, so this is an example of some of the more magical sides of, of the uh, ancient Norse. And yes, they are still practiced today by some groups of practicing pagans, and whether they are... I guess you can say true to the roots is uncertain simply because we just don't have sufficient records to determine that, but they mm-hmm. have definitely been reconstructed. Yeah. I love that there's space for women within like the Viking spirituality where, you know, within the Catholic church and things like that, it's sort of like the women are just 
like pious and like they're just doing the, you know like they're not able to like teach or definitely not channel information in or anything like that so i just yeah. i really love that the in the older beliefs that women were like equals or they had their own important role and men had their own important and then they come together you know because maybe the women are channeling the message and then the men are whatever practice they're doing you know um exactly and it's actually the um women were commonly in roles of medicine in healthcare as well as that um in fact uh, a goddess heir was often attributed to being the goddess of healing and health mm-hmm. and in in the norse belief systems as well so yes it's absolutely a very prominent aspect of that culture yeah Something, I haven't told you this, but um, something I picked up on when I was in the records is I've been asking about people's ancient names, like their first name, like Mm -hmm. the first name of their first incarnation. And I've been writing them down and the the way that so far the ones I've gotten have been received are in a weird language. So then I ask the records to interpret it and then they'll give me a English word that's the closest vibration to that those symbols and what I noticed is that like like a third of the letters look like r- the runes ah, and I'm like whoa what is going on here and you know I think it's there is something to the vibration of these these shapes like I don't know exactly what it is but I'm like I've seen this symbol before yes, yes. you know but some of it looks like a totally different language and then some some of it will look like runes and I'm like what is going on some of it looks like the Phoenician alphabet yeah. so I feel like our ancestors were tapping into that you know something that's way beyond even this dimension absolutely and this is something that Odin claimed to have attained the knowledge of the mm-hmm. incomplete knowledge of these runes and then pass it on to us to be able to apply to our lives as well. But yes, these are, he didn't create the runes. He learned the runes right. and he mastered the runes. So it just goes to show you that the vastness of this cosmos is almost almost beyond our comprehension. Right, right. Um, do you believe that we choose this life and can certain vows or commitments carry over from other lifetimes? It's a great question. So... I have been asked this question before, and it inspired me to research some of the oldest historical findings that I I have found on the concepts of karma and reincarnation, Mm -hmm. which dates back to the Vedas, the Pali Canon of India. And these all suggest that our rebirth is largely designed on the accumulative karma that we've acquired, whether good or bad. So the outright belief that people choose how to reincarnate doesn't necessarily come from the Dharmic teachings. These, you know, those origins are more of, you know, talking about the entire concept of reincarnation. But if you read the scriptures, they actually state that your karma alone does not determine how you reincarnate. Two factors determine that. That's karma and vasana. And vasanas means your tendencies within your consciousness. Mm. So this is where we might have some sway but there are some people who think that we pick out our lives like picking out a book off the shelf. And mm-hmm. I don't think it's quite like that. Um, so say, for example, that let's say in your life that you are deeply attached to, well, say, the ocean. You love the ocean. You think about it all the time. You always long to be at the ocean. You have a beach house. So you die. Then when you reincarnate, 
it's quite likely that you will take birth in or near the ocean. Mm. Your karma will also be a major factor, of course, though. Say you have terrible karma. So now you might be reborn as a very low ocean creature, a bottom feeder, or disease due to ocean pollution, or will soon fall prey to predation or commercial fishing or die an unpleasant death in the water. You know, something terrible. That doesn't sound good. Mm-hmm. With good karma, and say you're born with a great human family who lives by the ocean side or some other pleasant option. So this can be where we can choose, but it's not necessarily choosing like selecting a book. So according to the Dharmic teachings, it's it's kind of a misunderstanding how you choose to reincarnate into a conscious and specific way, like picking parents off a menu or choosing your birth date, etc. But if you have deep attachment to your family line or a specific different family line throughout your life, then it may be very likely that you will be born into that family or at least adjacent to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of look at it this way. See it as like a giant machine. You pour in the ingredients, and these are all karmic seeds, your previous actions, speeches, thoughts that have generated reactions in others and in the world. All these will eventually come to you after being fermented and processed in the system, which is also participated by others in nature. And then so the concept of reincarnation begins. Mm -hmm. I've been really evaluating like my natal chart as far as my karmas and and things with my parents and and things like that and I was asking the records you know I'm like why why did I choose you know what have I done Mm -hmm. and they actually said that it's not so much a karmic thing but that my soul desire to expand um, in this lifetime and so I actually chose a family that would do all of the wrong things so that I would like at a young age go ahead and start pursuing this path because I would feel so alone and I would just seek and and even some of the harsh disciplines like taught me certain mental tricks you know from other lifetimes where I had like basically mastered like meditation and like astral projection so that even the the harshest things that I went through were basically to help activate things I learned from past lives. So that by the time I got to where I'm at now, like 30, I'd already had a really good foundation and I could actually do more work in this lifetime. So they were like, it's not even so much like, oh, you deserve this. They were like, but this was like in alignment to what you needed to expand spiritually in this lifetime which is something i actually had like the desire yes yes to do, so. that's funny that goes right along with the, the vasanas the preference having such a strong preference right. and if your karma is conducive to supporting that then you created that perfect chemical soup to create that life for you next time and it's also a belief too that where your devotion lies in your life is also dependent a lot on where you go if you have sufficient karma and say you are highly devoted to a deity you might go to that deity's abode you, right. you might be reborn in Asgard, or you might be, if you are of the Christian faith, even a lot of pagans would not dismiss the concept of of Christ's heaven or the Father's heaven. Mm-hmm. If you are devoted to him, you may go there with strong enough devotion. So they don't even dismiss that that's a, a, a possibility. Right. Yeah, the same book I was reading about the astral planes, he was talking about, you know, it really is like what we wish to see, what we've kind of put in our minds throughout our lives like what we what we want to see so that's kind of where we go so he's like saying every religion that's created their own world like all of those worlds actually exist and yes you know yes they do what do you desire and that but it was also saying like atheists who imagine that nothing 
like there actually is a nothing realm. Eventually those those souls do get cycled back in and they get a new experience. Yes. But there's actually a point where they are seeing nothing. Totally. You know, so it's just, it's like, okay, you might want to be a little <laughs> exactly. mindful about what you, you know, what you believe and what you're desiring to see when you cross over. It really is. And it just goes to show you that we live in a world that's beyond black and white. It's mm -hmm. like people think, well, there's even a heaven or a hell or there's nothing. No, mm -hmm. it's so much more. There are immeasurable worlds right. and infinite possibilities of rebirths and realms. And it's it's these teachings demonstrate that. They really do. Right. And I even have heard some people, you know, they're in they're actually living out multiple incarnations at the same time. Absolutely. The multiverse in as fact is a very, very strong um, proponent in uh, the Hindu cosmology. Uh, mm -hmm. We live in um, universes side by side. In fact, multiple overlapping dimensions, realms of existence um, are happening simultaneously. Yes. Yeah, I totally believe it. And I, I think that sometimes when we're accessing like past lives that because time isn't what we think it is, right. it's actually, you know, we're, we're actually still there, you yes. know? So we're, we're able to tap into our minds in these other places once we realize that that is even a possibility because if you don't have the belief or the understanding then you're not even going to be able to do any of that absolutely but once you open yourself up to that possibility you realize that like each incarnation that you've ever had is actually accessible to you you know it's not like the way the gods just know everything you have to actually seek it i think yes when you're in the third dimension i believe you do so you have to have the intention you have to want you have to have a question or a reason why you would want to connect to that aspect of yourself. But once you make that connection, it's, it's absolutely amazing. Like what this other aspect of you can share with you. It you really know? is. It really is. You have to say, you always have to have both the discipline and the character to be able to access this. Some people have right. one and not the other. Mm -hmm. Some people are very disciplined in life, but they're just not spiritually in tune. Right. Some people are very spiritually in tune, but they're so scatterbrained that where they don't have the discipline to apply these practices. But when you have the discipline and the character to mm -hmm. do this, this is the perfect formulation uh, to be able to access this greater aspects of yourself. Yes, I think it's sort of like earth and air so having mm -hmm. your head in the clouds but your feet on the yes, ground yeah. and if you have too much air you can't ground any of the information you receive i love that and analogy. if you're too rooted in the earth then you're not gonna be able to expand your mind in the way that's needed so it's I actually it. like that balance of like the higher and the lower and not saying oh i'm i'm just i'm a high frequency no like being of the earth is important too yep. how are you going to bring anything back we are in a physical vessel right now <laughs> we are in this physical vessel right. and as long as we're in a physical vessel we are bound by the laws right. of this physical material world we are now it doesn't mean we cannot transcend that but we are as long as we're in this body right and i've been trying to just really honor my physical vessel more and like being present here and not thinking oh this is you know this is a matrix everything sucks here your earth is terrible i've been trying to think thank you mother earth like sure i really am enjoying my stay here and just trying to practice more gratitude and as much as yeah i'm able to access these other realms and places like that and, and it's amazing but i also i make that a special devotion practice i'm still very much physically here the rest of the time like yes. i want to be here on the earth and i don't think gaia is just some you know something that's been taken over i think if like if you're seeing that then that's the vibration that oh, you're yeah. on but i think that she's a wonderful you know goddess and i think it the third dimension is just as important as all the other ones they absolutely you know? are we have to be able to understand it first at right. least to a degree before we can uh, begin to transcend into higher realms
Right. And then just honor where we're at in our journey, you know? Very is, well said. Yeah. So, um, do you see any kind of connection between Idrisil and the chakra system? I do. In fact, <laughs> this is this is not something that's canon. Mm-hmm. This is this is mere theory, you know, and that's even a stretch to say. Um, but this is just based off of what I would call head canon, which mm-hmm. is a comic term to basically put different pieces of the puzzle together. Mm-hmm. So. I'll get to this here. So basically, as we talked about, all early cultures were so related, and there's such a strong root between the Indo-European cultures, and the chakras in Yggdrasil are no exception to that. Um, so there's actually a book, which opened my eyes to this, called The Seed of Yggdrasil, which relates the tree to both the universe and the human body. And there are beliefs that suggest that Yggdrasil represents both the cosmos in its entirety, as well as the human body. Oh, and this is all speculation, like I said. But if we put this together and we start looking at the creatures on Yggdrasil, the tree, we can start to see how they can represent the chakras. Mm -hmm. For example, at the top of Yggdrasil, there is an eagle. Now, this is a nameless eagle. It doesn't have a name, but there is an eagle. And this is in the attestations of the Poetic Edda. He sits at the top of Yggdrasil. It's also, also believed to stand for the third eye. Because the eagle also has a small hawk sitting in between his eyes. And it's often alluded to that this eagle has knowledge of all things. Now we go back to the the root of Yggdrasil. We have Nidog the dragon. Well, what does Nidog the dragon do? Nidog the dragon is said to be gnawing relentless at this tree. He's eating away at the tree. There are also four red deer on Yggdrasil that are said to chew on the leaves of the tree And there's also a squirrel that runs up and down to deliver messages between the eagle and the dragon. So the number of creatures on Yggdrasil is in alignment with the number of chakras. Mm -hmm. So let's look at the dragon now. The dragon gnawing on the root indicates the root chakra, aka sexual energy. So according to Norse, now this is theory, it could be perceived that perhaps this is a distraction in life and if we allow this energy to run rampantly and aimlessly then it will gnaw on the very fabric of our existence if we're only guided by instinctual response Mm -hmm. it's gnawing at who we are if we're always distracted this is why monks practice celibacy and it's why they're so disciplined in life also the squirrel that runs down seems to be parallel with the chakra responsible for controlling the energy that Mm -hmm. flows through the body so interestingly enough, though, in the Chinese culture, including many sects of Taoism, we would refer to that as qi or qi. And qi gong is said to be able to harness that particular flow of energy, but they don't necessarily use the word chakras mm-hmm. in Chinese culture. So there's a lot of parallels that we're seeing here from a lot of different cultures that are basically saying the same thing. Right. So in short, I, I think there's enough parallels to say there's a connection for sure. Right. When you're talking about the dragon being at the bottom i just saw this image of um it's from like the herman it's actually from a manly p hall book and it's um both putting his foot on this it's like a dragon and he's literally like got his foot on it and it and that's like typhon who's like this yes and i was like that's what i'm seeing when you said that um which like his foot, you know, if you think about the root chakra is like extending down to the feet, you know, that that might be too also a reference to the the chakra system, which I never thought about. 
of like having your foot like rooted, but then that that's where that dragon is. Yes, you know? and that dragon, if we correspond it with the root chakra, it doesn't mean that that the root chakra is a bad chakra by any means, but it's right. saying if it's imbalanced. I right. mean, look what happens if we live a life of hedonism where we right. just pursue pleasures, which is interesting. Why it said that that dragon is at odds with the eagle. Mm-hmm. The eagle, it stands for all-knowing and self-discipline, and then we have a squirrel that runs back right. and forth between the two of them. Right at that talking about the the fight the struggle with the fight between discipline and the hedonistic side of humankind it's it's just fascinating to look at it in that in right. that sense right and when you were talking about the squirrel this also ties in because both and hermes are you know synonymous in a lot of ways mm-hmm. and in esoteric astrology mercury which is associated with hermes rules the anakarana which is like the heart chakra because that's the bridge between the higher and lower so the squirrel going back and forth made me think of mercury like 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 who's able to bridge this gap and like send messages back and forth so like this painting was like when you were talking i was like i feel like this is saying the same thing but i'd never like you know tried to associate the two but i feel like there's something going on there absolutely there's it's so true and then uh when we look at the the chakra that delivers the energy and then the Chinese practice the the energy of key. Right. I, mean, it's a, a, I think I would be the same thing. I mean, we right. can't come out and say this is this, but right. this sounds like you guys are kind of saying the same thing. You know? Right, right. I definitely you know. think that there's overlaps and, and similarities. And a lot of these stories are in the art. Like if you just look at that image of Idrisil and just evaluate it, then these it sort of starts coming alive and you're like, okay, well, I could see yeah. how the squirrel might be relevant, you know? Right, and, uh, right. It's just so cool. I think it's just a matter of just spending time like pondering it so true it really does and looking in that book is an amazing book that really helps shine that light onto the parallels of all these teachings and i mean really these teachings are separated by culture and Mm -hmm. other than that that's really it right right i love that so we're getting close to wrapping up could you tell us the best way for our listeners to follow you and also how to access your patreon and some of that i'll add links at the end too but absolutely so i currently run i run three different instagram pages here so i have my personal page which i share everything on there it's brains and brawn.86 i also have if you're interested in strictly the spiritual components of what i do that's simply the syncretic pagan and my more recent page is dranger discipline that's d-r-e-n gr space discipline and that is also linked to my patreon account under drenger discipline and we'll of course we'll put the links up there it's a direct link that will click directly on the patreon and i have several different tiers that you can subscribe to as low as five dollars a month and then of course as we go up in tiers this is where we start doing more one-on-one work more exclusive content but it's as low as five dollars a month and this is just for basic support so yeah if anybody's interested in more of the material i design feel free to check out any of my instagram pages i'm also working on getting my new youtube account up and launched as well as my website awesome well thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this wisdom with us Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here as always. I love the opportunity and I can't thank you enough. Yes. So anytime you want to come back on, you're always welcome on the show. I appreciate that. Thank you all. And I hope everybody had a great time listening. Yes. Thank you. And thank you all for tuning in. Check us out next time on the Astral Hour.